Okay, I want to talk to you this evening um, about the whole thing of being um, a conqueror or being a warrior or being an overcomer. I don't know what term you kind of most... Um, are attracted to personally just because of who I am I like the notion of being a warrior some of you might prefer the words overcomer some of you like might uh, choose the word conqueror some of you probably most of us actually sitting here this evening will think me an overcomer me a conqueror me a warrior you must be joking I can't even conquer my habit of you know dot 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 but actually the bible says Romans Paul says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors, doesn't he? He doesn't say you will be when you've, you know, been on such and such a course and read such and such a material and passed such and such a test. He doesn't say you might be one day if you kind of hit the professional Christian level. And he doesn't say you could be if you want to be or if you really stick close to God. He says you are more than conquerors. You are an overcomer. I am a warrior now, today, in this moment. So just turn to the girl next to you and look her in the eye and look at her very seriously and say, you are a conqueror. Okay, this isn't a chance to do 10,000 words. We've had our coffee. I'm sure there'll be a chance to chat again at the end. And do you know what? The Bible says it's true. Whether it feels true, whether we like it or not, you might not like the notion of being um, defined and described as being a warrior or a conqueror or an overcomer. But it, it doesn't matter whether it feels true, whether you like it or not, whether you want to be or not. That's who God says that you are. That is the word of heaven over your heart. That is the truth of, of, of God over your life. That is part of our identity as children of his. If we're made in his image, if we're filled it with his spirit, if we have his name, as it were, written on our hearts, we are conquerors. We are warriors. We are overcomers. I think we've got a little picture to put up on the screen, which I have to say is a picture that I really love. <laughs> which your lovely team from Streams have found, and they're going to give you one of these this evening. (laughs) So you probably, and I probably, would see ourselves as the little kitten. You know, maybe not as cute as that, but... (laughs) But we see ourselves as the little kitten, bit timid, bit afraid, bit vulnerable, and God sees us as that lion, you know? We belong to the family of the Lion of Judah. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and we are his sisters. And we are lionesses. I know he's a lion. We are lionesses. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's true. So I want to look at a story in the Bible that probably many of you may not be familiar with. Um, I don't know. But the story of um, a woman called Tamar, who for me epitomizes, you know, what a warrior woman looks like. And I want to pick out just a few things from her story. Um, I don't know if any of you have been snorkeling. Um, My husband and I had the privilege of going to um, Israel a number of years ago before we had had children. And um, I'm a bit sort of timid 
in things to do with wildlife, you know, terrified of being bitten and, you know, particularly by poisonous fishes. So we had this opportunity to go snorkeling on our last couple of days. And I was like, you know, pretending that, you know, oh, no, you know, I've got a bit of a stomachache. Don't want to go in the sea. And it's like, oh, no, I need a bit more sun time. <laughs> on the last opportunity to go snorkeling with these friends of ours, you know, my husband said, don't be so pathetic. Come on, you know, this is an opportunity not to miss. And of course... I absolutely loved it, and then there wasn't time to go again. But what really struck me was this incredible life that lives below the sea of incredible beauty, incredible, you know, stuff that God has made that hardly anybody ever gets to see. But it's still there, and it's still precious, and it's still important. And I think this woman, Tamar, is a bit like that. I think she's one of the characters in the Bible, the women in the Bible that, you know, we tend to gloss over. She's, she's caught in the middle of Joseph's story, and we all know about Joseph. And there's one chapter in the Bible devoted to her story that we kind of tend to gloss over. And actually, there's real treasure in this story, and I think God wants to speak to us through it this evening. So I'm just going to read it. You've got, um, if you've got your Bibles, you can follow it. I'm going to read it quite quickly because it's quite a long chapter, but actually it's a good story for us to have and to hold in our minds um, so that we can learn something for her. So this is the story of, Jude, uh, of Tamar. And as I said, it, it's an interruption in the middle of the story of Joseph. <clears throat> At that time, Judah left his brothers. I'm starting in Genesis 38, verse 1. Sorry. (laughs) So enthusiastic and keen to get on with it. (laughs) Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and married and, and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But uh, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep them from, provide, to keep from, from providing offspring for his brother. Have you noticed how the Bible doesn't seem to cut out details, depending on how <laughs> unsalubrious they are? What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend here, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she thought that though Sheila had now grown up, she'd not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. It's as good as EastEnders, isn't it? 
And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he didn't find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute there. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he didn't sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. As I said, no, no attention to details spared. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zira. It's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? Good bedtime reading, I think. So here is, in my eyes anyway, a young woman who is every inch a conqueror, a warrior woman, as it were. And uh, on the face of it, it's not necessarily how we would sort of sum her up. She looks a bit brassy, doesn't she, on the face of it. Some people sort of have interpreted her as being a a wicked woman, that she compromised all of her standards just to have a baby that she was longing for, that she took things into her own hands, that she manipulated Judah, that she was devious and scheming, that she impersonated a prostitute, that she tricked him. You know, not on the face of it necessarily the kind of woman that we might want to encourage our daughters to aspire to be. And, and, you know, she, she's, she looks as if she's a woman who's driven by her motive, her, her selfish motive to have a baby. However, I think Jude uh, Tamar, on the face of it, is often misjudged and misunderstood, as I think many of us often are. We're looking at the sort of headlines, as it were. We look at what is recorded in the story, and it's very easy to gloss over stories without thinking about or looking about, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And the Bible gives us some clues as to what this woman is really about, who she really is and what she really did. And the first clue is in the story that we read. In in, uh, verse 26 of this chapter, Judah says, she is more righteous than I. He's paying tribute to the fact that she did something incredibly noble, incredibly good, and incredibly honoring to God. A few uh, books on in the Bible, in the book of Ruth, 
when Ruth is kind of connected to and married to Boaz and they have a child, the, uh, the villagers bless this child. And the blessing that they proclaim over this child was this, may your family be like that of Perez who Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah. So they were blessing this child and naming him after um, or referring to the son that Tamar had born to Judah. And then um, David named his daughter after Tamar. He would have known the genealogy of the line of Judah. He, he named his daughter after Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. And he named his, oh, his granddaughter was named after Tamar. So clearly in Hebrew tradition, Tamar was looked at as a woman worthy of naming a child after or blessing a child. And actually in the book of Matthew, if you're familiar with the genealogy of Jesus, there are four women named in the genealogy and Tamar gets a mention. She's part of the line that Jesus was born through. He was born through, you know, Judah Perez. Perez was the one who was in the genealogy. So why is she in fact... In, in Judah's words, a righteous woman. Well, a bit of cultural context helps here. And it's alluded to in the story. But in those days, and actually throughout Hebrew tradition, if a man married a woman, it's so different from our culture today. But if a man married a woman, it was the duty of the family to produce an heir, a family heir, so that the estate and the property and the possessions of the family would be passed down that line. So, of course, it was, it was the duty and the hope of every family to produce a son. And uh, the, the, the male members of the family, the brothers in a family, kind of committed and covenanted to each other. It was expected of them that if one of their brothers died and left a wife without a male heir, their duty would be as a brother and, a man, and, a, and, a, and as a member of the family to sleep with their brother's wife and to provide a son. And then they could go on and continue to have their own family. So that the family line, the family name, the family dignity, the family honor, and the family future and inheritance was preserved. So this is the culture that this story is set in. The brother and the widow were required and expected and anticipated to make a sacrifice for the sake of the family name. So with that backdrop, Judah was responsible, or his sons were responsible for providing an heir for his son, Ur. I mean, shocking name, isn't it? What do you think happened when she was giving birth, that woman? What should we call him? Ur. Okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> so Ur married this girl, Tamar, and he died, notice, because he was wicked in the Lord's sight. The Bible makes commentary on who the wicked people were in this story. He died... And that family had a covenant to provide Ur with um, a son and heir. And Onan, well, it's not much better, is it, as a name, was next in line and should have done his duty. And the, and the story tells us why he didn't, didn't. So this poor girl has a first husband who's wicked, who's not very nice. Any girlhood dream she might have had for a happy romantic marriage, for a family with lots of children and a future together were dashed because he was so horrible and he was so bad that the Lord decided to take his life. 
and then bless her. It's not like she had a way out and could go off and do her own thing. She had to wait for brother number two to come along. And nobody would have believed her if she'd told everybody what was happening in the bedroom. You know, they wouldn't have believed a woman's testimony. So she was then married to this second horrible, evil brother who was actually using her. And the one thing he was meant to be doing was providing an heir. He was, you know, having the pleasure and robbing her of the opportunity to become pregnant. And so God stepped in again. So by the end of marriage number two, she's in a pretty shocking position, isn't she? She hadn't chosen either of those men. I mean, maybe some of us know what it's like to live with, you know, an abusive man. I'm sure if we don't, you know, we know people who do. She had no choice over this scenario. Then she's promised son number three by the name of Sheila. I know people name their children after Bible names, but I haven't yet come across somebody who's named their son Sheila. Anyway, and then Judah, who is just as bad really, steps in and prevents Sheila from marrying Tamar because he thinks she's the wicked one. I mean, how bad can it get? You know, she's a victim, isn't she? She's got no control over her circumstances. She gets evil man number one, he dies. Evil man number two, he dies. And then Judah prevents his third son, the only one that could give her an heir, from marrying her because Judah thinks she's the evil one. She's the cause of all the problems. She's the cause of all the trouble. I wonder what you would have done. I wonder what you would have done at this point in time. She'd been dealt a really difficult hand badly treated. God had helped her a couple of times, but actually the promised son and heir didn't materialize. I just want to pick out three simple things about Tamar or from this story that I think we need to be reminded of. I know I do certainly about what it, what, what it, what is involved, what we need to be reminded about as warrior women, if we're going to overcome the circumstances and the situations that life throws at us. Firstly, life is tough. I know that's really obvious, and you're probably sitting there thinking, we're not at kindergarten here. But actually, I think we need to remind it of the fact, we need to be reminded of the fact, I know I do, that life is tough. I think it's very easy, I don't know about you, to fall into the trap of thinking when we become Christians and God is on our side and God is powerful and God is good, that actually if we walk with him and if we trust him and we obey him, life's going to work out and he's going to bless us and he's going to answer our prayers and actually things are going to go go our way. Now I know we know that's not true but I wonder how many of us struggle with the sense when things go wrong or when life does become tough. How many of us struggle with the notion of God have you abandoned me? God have I done something wrong here? Do you really love me? Are you really on my side? Are you really with me in this situation? Are you really for me? We struggle with those doubts, don't we? And we struggle with trust in those situations because it's so easy to take our circumstances as a reflection on how God feels about us. And I think one of the reasons we do that is because we have this subconscious notion that if God's for us and he's on our side, he's going to make things okay. And actually, this story reminds us that life is tough. Jesus said, didn't he, in this world, you'll have trouble. It's one of my least favorite promises. You never see it on a car bumper sticker, do you? (laughs) In this world, you'll have trouble. Praise the Lord. We never see that. 
But those feelings that we experience of abandonment or of betrayal or of disappointment or of despair, they're connected to the fact that somewhere we believe that God has abandoned us because of what we're going through. Do you know what? As warrior women, we've got to remember, actually, that life is tough. Jesus says we'll have trouble, not because he doesn't love us, not because he's not on our side, not because he's not for us, but because we live in a world that is fallen and broken. And because we still live on earth, where things are broken and people are broken and I'm broken and you're broken and creation is broken, there will be trouble in this life. Tamar, there's nothing in this story that suggests that Tamar was disobedient, that she was wicked, that she'd done something wrong, that she didn't deserve the Lord's favor. She lived in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And Jesus says that because of that, we will have trouble. And we need to remember that. It's very basic, but we need to remember it because otherwise we end up feeling like God has somehow gone AWOL and we're in this on our own or he's not with us, or he's not for us, or there's a reason why he's not working, and it's got something to do with me. So we need to remember that we live in a world where we will have trouble. Secondly, I think as warrior women, we need to remember that actually, although we live in one world, as it were, on one earth, it has two spiritual dimensions to it. Again, I know that we know that with our heads, but it's so easy to forget when we're in the middle of something challenging. This world that we live in, it has two dimensions, doesn't it? What we can see and what we can't see. 2 Corinthians 4 says, doesn't it, that what we can see is temporal. It doesn't last. It's the invisible stuff that's eternal, that lasts forever. Paul reminds us, doesn't he, in Ephesians 6, that our struggle, what's it against? It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against the stuff and the people that we can see. It's against the powers and the principalities that we can't see. And it's that stuff that we can't see that has the power to come between us and God, to interfere with our peace, to interfere with our relationship with him, to interfere with our intimacy. And many of us, again, I think, and I include myself in this, we can fall into the trap of believing that somehow if I pray hard and if I do what God says and if I trust him and I love him, he'll deliver everything else on a plate. But Paul says we need to wear our armor. Why? Because there are powers and principalities at work. Jesus said there's an enemy. He said, I've come to give you life in all its fullness. Now, we see that on the bumper stickers, don't we? (laughs) That gets on the back of the car. We love that truth. Jesus has come to give us life in all his fullness. But he says in the very next breath, but there's a thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy I've come to give you life in its fullness, but there is a thief who has come to steal and destroy. We have to deal with God. We have a relationship with God. We need to stay connected to him and invest in that relationship. But do you know, as his children, we also have to remain aware of the fact that we have an enemy. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. He is God's enemy. Now, I know, you know, we believe in a gospel of good news, and this doesn't sound terribly good news. But Jesus does say, take heart, I've overcome the world. With me, nothing is impossible. Jesus has overcome and disarmed our enemy. But we will be much more successful in dealing with the things that are thrown against us if we remember 
that actually we have one and therefore we, we rely on the Lord as to how, to how to help us deal with what comes against us than if we think, oh, it's just life. It's just life. We live in a world with two spiritual dimensions to it and we are at war. The Bible is full of warrior, you know, war language, isn't it? We are at war whether we like it or not. And if we're going to be effective and see some of the victories that God wants to move into our lives, then we've got to see the world in the way that he sees it. And then thirdly, and most importantly, we, we need to remember that, that uh, you know, God has said we will have trouble. We're walking against the wind. Have you ever stood on a hill and tried walking into the wind? It's really hard, isn't it, when the wind is blowing strongly? You know, there are times in our life when the wind will be blowing because we live in a world that's broken. We need to remember that there are two spiritual dimensions to this world that we live in. And thirdly, and I know, you know, this probably sounds even more basic, but if we're going to live the life of fullness and see the kind of victory that he has, has invited us to experience, we've got to remember that we're overcomers. And therefore, we've got to live like overcomers, like conquerors, like warriors. And to me, this is how Tamar lives in her situation. A few, uh, two or three years ago, no, probably three or four years ago, outside, um, we used to live in a square. Cheltenham's a bit like Leamington Spa, beautiful Regency town. And we, live, um, in, we lived in a square um, that was a kind of square in between a lovely posh bit of town and a really sort of awful bit of town. And there was quite a lot of, you know, goings on, as you can imagine, in the square that we lived. And uh, one day I was in the kitchen and I ha- heard this, um, we, we were renting um, uh, a sort of one of those terrace Regency houses that had some iron railings out the front. And one day I was in the house and uh, I heard this really loud sort of rattling noise. It was very strange. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I realized after a while as it continued that uh, it was actually outside our house. And uh, the boys, I have three sons and the boys and my daughter used to park their bikes outside the front and, front and attach them to the railings with padlocks. And I suddenly realized that somebody was out there shaking the bikes really, really hard to try and break the padlocks. So, of course, I'm such a coward in these situations and my husband was at home, so I went, Tim! Because <laughs> that's what I do in a crisis, just shout for him. And actually, he was in the house. So I said, I think the bike's being stolen. I didn't dare look out of the window. Anyway, he opened the front door. And of course, just as he opened the front door, the culprits were leaving with one of the bikes, but trying to look really cool as if it was their bike. So it was dark, um, and uh, my husband watched where they went, and he said, right, and he got another one of my sons, and he said, right, I'm, I'm going to get that bike back. I was like, no, they could have a knife, you know, <laughs> really brave, not. And so he set off across the square and uh, approached this teenage um, chap, who was probably the same size as him, and... Uh, said, excuse me, whose bike is that? And he said, well, you know, is that your bike? And he said, well, I found something. And he said, that's my son's bike. I'd like it back, please. And I think the chap was so shocked, he just dropped the bike and ran. And my husband brought the bike back to our house. And I sat there thinking, Lord, that is so interesting. I'm such a coward. I would have just thought, you know, I analysed my kind of reaction to the situation. I thought my natural reaction was to let it go, to think, oh, it's gone, can't do anything about that. You know, we're going to have to get a new bike. His was completely different. His was, that bike belongs to us. 
that bike has been stolen, I'm going after it, and I'm going to get it back. And I didn't think it would be possible to get it back, which is why I didn't bother going after it in the first place. You know, he did, and he got the bike back. And I think the chap was quite shocked at the authority with which he said, whose is that? You know, it's ours, give it back. And God spoke to me that day, and he said, this is a picture of how I want you to live as my child. There are things that are stolen from you that you need to go after and get back. And I want you to just stop putting your hands up in surrender and think, oh dear, you know, that's gone. I've got to learn how to live with that. Give me strength. Help me to, you know, get over it or whatever. And I felt the Lord say, I want you to go after things that have been stolen from you by the enemy and get them back. And do you know what? That's what this girl does. That is what this story is about. Tamar decides that she is going to go after something that was her inheritance as a child of God and as a member of the tribe of the family of the tribe of Judah. What she did is that she decided in that moment that she was going to rise up and she was going to fight. She was going to fight for this child that was hers by right, as it were, for the sake of the family of Judah. And I think, there was a, I think there was a really defining moment for Tamar, just like there was for my husband, and actually just like there was for me, except my response to it was pathetic. But <laughs> I think there was a defining moment for her when she needed to decide, am I going to go for this and rise up to be who I really am and can be in God? Or am I going to shrink back, put my hands up in defeat and say, what will be, will be. And th- that's what she does here. I bet she felt like giving up. She'd had three chances to become a mother, and they'd all gone. None of them had materialized. How easy would it have been for her to say, I've had my chances and they've gone. That's it. You know, I can't hope for anything else. She would have been totally justified, this woman, I think, in thinking that nothing was ever going to change. You know, if it was going to change, well, it could have happened then. And if it was going to change, it could have happened with Onan. And if I was meant to have a child, then Judah would have given me Sheila. She could have given up hope, but she didn't. And that's why I love this story because, you know, the Bible is about real characters with real life situations that, you know, we can relate to. They're not perfect. They don't have, you know, these fantastic, glitzy, perfect lives. They have real struggles and we get glimpses into them. And I think she would have cried her heart out. This girl went through a total nightmare. She'd been in our church. She would have had years of ministry. She would have cried her heart out. You know, who knows whether she would have, you know, had counsel from her friends. She would have prayed. She would have gone over and over in her mind, I think, how things could have been. What if? What if this? What if that? No doubt, you know, she had had her moments of staring into a black pit of despair. But at, at some point, this girl begins a fight back. She begins a fight back, a fight back for what it was right in God's eyes, a son for the line of Judah, a fight back for what was right for Judah and for her dead husband, who was horrible. You know, she would have done well to turn her back on the family, a fight back for what was good. And I think there was a point at which a cry rose in her spirit and she was like, right, enough's enough. I'm going after what the Lord intends for this family line. And I think the most incredible thing with her, and I think this is what is key to being a warrior, an overcomer, a conqueror, was the ability that she had to go against her own grain. 
What do I mean by that? Do you think she felt like doing what she did? Do you think she felt like exposing herself to this horrible man, Judah, who was the father of these horrible boys? Of putting herself in a position where she was going to be taken advantage of. I'm quite sure she wasn't looking forward to the events of that night with Judah if he would pick her up and, you know, sleep with her. Do you think she felt like it? I don't think so. Do you think she was full of hope that that was going to be the one night that she was fertile? The one night that she might conceive? I don't think so. I think she just decided, I've got to do something. And I don't care whether I feel like it or not, I've got to do something different if I'm going to take back what belongs to this family. And uh, she was up against a huge amount. She could have been actually really hurt in the process. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant to be you know, a prostitute and taken advantage of in those days, but she went for it. And do you know what? I, we often talk about spiritual warfare, don't we, as Christians, as being you know, a way to pray, to you know, make inroads into our communities and pray against this and pray against that. I'm sure that's all true. But do you know, I think the most significant place that warfare happens is in our minds, over the decisions we take or we don't take. You know, those arguments that go on, the battles we face in our minds. She had the moment of making a decision where she was going to resist. She decided she was going to resist what was coming against her, to resist what everyone was throwing at her. She was going to resist that disappointment. She was going to resist giving in to despair. She was going to resist giving in to self-pity. She was going to resist giving in to anger, to the anger of what had been done to her. She was going to resist giving in to the resentment of what had been piled up on her over the years. She was going to resist the fear of what another man from that family could do to her. She was going to resist the resignation of giving in to a future the same as her present. She's an incredible woman. She's an absolutely incredible woman. And she decided to do something different and take off her clothes. I love that phrase. She decided to change her clothes. And I think that's symbolic of the fact that she decided to do something incredibly different. Those clothes enabled her to stand in a different place, to do something different, to, make, to take a risk and make herself available for what God can do. She didn't manipulate the situation. She didn't force Judah to sleep with her. Judah could have walked right on past and ignored her. She was just there and put herself in a place where God could work if he was going to. So how is this relevant to us? Do you know what? I think she is a brilliant example of what it looks like to be a warrior and to resist and to fight the battles that come against us. Changing her clothes for her was symptomatic of changing her mental attitude towards something that had been coming against her for a long time. Do we need to make a change in our mental attitude, in our thinking, to the situations that we feel we are struggling with, that are getting us down, that we are fighting against in our lives? Because that is where the battles are won and lost, over the decisions we make and the way we react to the things and the trouble that is going on in life. For some of us, we are wrestling with very real difficulties, with very testing situations, that have the potential to rob us of joy, of hope, of a future, of our dreams coming true, of our trust in God. You know, maybe that's your experience tonight. Maybe, like Tamar, you've been praying, hoping, waiting, wanting a different future, and you feel like God just isn't playing ball. 
For some of us, those scenarios are really painful. But actually, God has created us as lionesses. And he won't do the part that he's called us to play. He's God. We're here on this earth. He's called us warriors because we have his spirit living within us. And there's a part we have to play and a battle that we have to fight. And he calls us to resist and oppose and to go after those things that he promises us in his word that are our inheritance as children of God. So I want to close by asking you a few questions. What are you being called to resist at the moment, to rise up and fight for in your life? What's coming against your relationship with God, your love, your ability to love him or to be obedient that something he's challenging you over or your intimacy with him? What's coming against your ability to trust him at this moment? What are you wrestling with that is getting in the way of your trust of him? What's getting in the way of you stepping out and taking risks for him? Seeing his kingdom come in your circumstances, in your families, in your workplace. This is something that he's asking you to do, but you're just feeling like you're sort of down and out because the enemy's having a real go with despair and, and negativity and whatever else. I have a friend who, um, she's only been a Christian about a year, but um, in the last few months, she's been wrestling with real fear over her finances, wanting to trust God for money, but really struggling with fear. And the Lord has challenged her to resist that fear and to change her clothes and to do something different. She's a new Christian, and so she started tithing. And you know, in starting tithing, in doing that risky thing, God has started blessing her socks off and she's got savings in her account she's got you know money coming she cannot believe it and actually we might think no that's a stupid thing to do but actually she's changed her clothes like Tamar she's decided to to resist that fear to go against the grain to do something different and she's seeing a breakthrough maybe you're in a difficult marriage and actually what you're needing to resist is giving into the resentment or the despair, or, you know, the unforgiveness that wants to take hold of your heart? Are you struggling with insignificance? You know, is that having a go at you? Is that making you shrink back from what God's made you for? Do you need to step out and do something different and begin to trust, which might feel very risky, some of the promises of God about who you are and what he wants for you? Are you struggling with loneliness? You know, so much loneliness in our culture. Are you struggling with loneliness? Do you need to do something different? Do you need to resist the desire to kind of give in to waiting for someone to come to me and step out and go and find somebody and offer to bless somebody else? Have you stopped praying about something that you felt that you prayed about for so long and you haven't seen a breakthrough? And that despair or that doubt or that unbelief is kind of creeping up on you and wanting to keep you down. Do you need to do something different? Do you need to rise up? Do you need to choose to resist that and start praying new prayers with a new energy from God? Because you're not going to give in to the enemy's schemes to, to keep you down. 
I know for me, there was a defining moment. I've, you know, in our family, there's, you know, my generational family, there's been a lot of self-pity. And, and uh, I can remember getting to one point um, a number of years ago, I was lying in the bath and, you know, feeling really sorry for myself. And I could name all these situations that weren't changing. And I thought I had a legitimate, you know, grievance against God. And um, I was crying out to him, you know, you know, and I felt the Lord say to me, start praising me start thanking me and I thought this is awful to admit I thought I can't think of anything to thank you for God you know there was such a cloud over my mind the enemy had me you know in that place where I couldn't think of a single thing to thank him for so he said to me again start thanking me so I found one thing I could thank him for. I know it sounds really pathetic, but I found one thing I could thank him for and I started thanking him for that thing. And as I started thanking him, another thing came into my mind and another thing and another thing. And do you know, by the time I got out of the bath, something had lifted off me and was broken off me. And I know that was the beginning of winning a battle in my family over self-pity. And it came by deciding to resist and to rise up and to do something different than I'd done before. Sounds so simple, but it was so hard at the time. You know, maybe for some of us, it's about risking walking across the office or the home or the school playground and praying for somebody to be healed. Just resisting that fear. And what the enemy will say, God's not going to do anything. And going and praying and offering to pray for somebody. Do you know what? The most amazing thing about this story was Tamar did her bit. She rose up and she fought and she decided not to give in any longer to that stuff that could have kept her where she was. She put herself in the place where God could do something. But God had to do the rest, didn't he? And it happened to be her time of the month. And Judah happened to stop and happened to sleep with her. And she happened to have twins and she happened to have boys. And so the line of Judah continued and Jesus happened to be born through the line of Judah. It's incredible, isn't it? It is the most incredible ending of an incredible story. And actually, that's what God does when we step out and do something that's hard. You know, battles about making a difficult choice, isn't it? But when we rise up, when we decide that we're going to be who God has called us to be and to step into that identity and begin to fight for what we have been, you know, what he's promised us, when we put ourselves out and put ourselves in that place of vulnerability and risk and decide to do something different, God will come through and do the rest. Just for your information, I've never prayed for people like that in a meeting before. I prayed for lots of people individually, but I've never done it before in a meeting. But I felt the Lord say tonight, step out and take a risk and look what he's done. And he wants to do that in and through all of us. So we're going to do a bit of praying for the last quarter of an hour. What I would love to do is this. It might be a little bit messy. For those of you that are here and know that you would love healing in your body, I'd like you to come down to this area over here and we will pray for you. And when I say we, that's not the kind of professional team that's here because there aren't very many of us. Any of you that know that you would like to step out and have a bit more courage in praying for healing for people because it's easier to practice in the church than out in the street, isn't it? If you know that you would like to take a little bit of a risk and get a little bit of practice about praying for healing, you've seen how simple it is. It's as simple as speaking to the condition and saying amen and finding out whether the 10 has moved. Can I encourage you 
to come down here and pray for these people. They'll be your guinea pigs. God will do the rest. Is that okay? So if you want to begin moving, if you want to pray for healing or you need healing, come down to this corner down here. I know there'll be some of you here, so don't wait for me to say anything else. For the rest of us, I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to share an area where you know you need God's strength to rise up. Okay, this isn't a long chat forum about all the details of the situation and why you need what you need. We all know the situations that God, you know, that we're wrestling with, whether you're wrestling with doubt or unbelief or fear or disappointment, or you just want more courage to step into a situation that you know God is is nudging you towards. And we're going to pray for each other that God would fill us with his strength and his courage to resist, to rise up and to take that step that we know he's wanting us to take. Is that okay? Yeah? So let's be brave. And do you know what? If you've never prayed out loud before, that's cool too. This is your risk. You can pray a one-sentence prayer and God will honor it. And there will be twins in the spiritual realm. Okay? (laughs) So, oh my goodness, we've got loads of healing. 